Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We recorded this week's show back on July 16th as part of All Together Now, the Hartman Institute's massive online summer learning festival. I sat down virtually with my friend and colleague Yossi Klein-Halevi, an acclaimed journalist, author, and a senior fellow at the Institute, to talk about Zionism. In planning this conversation, we had originally anticipated that we'd be grappling with the consequences of what had been promised as the planned annexation of parts of the West Bank. That plan still hasn't happened yet, but even the threat of annexation has prompted some serious reckoning among Zionists and their critics about what happens next. Our conversation was less political analysis and more our wrestling together as colleagues who work closely together but do not usually see eye to eye about the big questions facing Jewish peoplehood and in the ongoing evolution of the state and in light of the American Jewish experience. We had a few audio issues along the way, but I can personally tell you that I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will too. It's nice to see you, Yossi. Thank you, Rachel, for the introduction. Uh, today, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you, Yossi, about... Um, about that old chestnut Zionism, which, uh, which continues to be, uh, continues to create, um, such, uh, dynamic foment, uh, in the Jewish people, the big conversation for really among the Jewish people for now over 120 years, uh, who we are, uh, politically as a people, what is our future, uh, what is the legacy of this big story? And, you know, when we first started talking about this session, oh, about a month or so ago, at the time, the topic, you know, we picked the topic Zionism after annexation because it looked like with the July 1 deadline that there was a, it was a fait accompli that there was going to be the first really significant change in the status quo uh, in quite some time. And we were going to ask a set of ideological questions for both Israeli Jews and American Jews of what it means to be in relationship to this big project with this change. Uh, as I'm sure many of you know, that July 1 came and went. Uh, the latest news on this was that the U.S. administration has basically said to the state of Israel, not now. <laughs> it's a distraction, not, not now. Uh, and so it's not clear that annexation will come and go. Uh, but it is, it, it is still a kind of witness to a moment of um, a sense that even the, that the question of whether the status quo can hold the Jewish people uh, and uh, and still a, a set of lingering questions that emerge from this moment of what are going to be the threshold issues that sever the relationship between Israel and world Jewry. Let me start, Yassi, by asking this. You know, when we come to this question of what, what does Zionism mean after annexation or, or what does it mean for Israel to confront annexation? And in fact, I want to parse the distinction between those. For Israel to withstand annexation is a political question, right? For Zionism to withstand annexation is not really a political question. It's an ideological question. Um, and, uh, and I sometimes am never, I, sometimes I'm not sure quite what we're talking about. Are we talking about what Israel can and should do with respect to its own future or the, Pal of course, what does that mean to the Palestinians? Are we, and I hear, I mean, we as, as diaspora Jews, are we actually talking about Israel when it comes to conversations around Zionism in America? Or are we talking about ourselves? How do we want to feel implicated in this story? Or are we talking not about ourselves and not about Israel, but about this big story of Jewish history for which we always seem to be looking for comparison? So just as a start, Yassi, when you look at the, the the diaspora conversation around Zionism, what do you 
which of these is it really about? And as an Israeli, which of them, which of these conversations, actual Israel, who diaspora Jews are relative to Israel or the big story of Jewish history, which of them do you actually feel like you want to engage with and which of them do you feel enchanted by? So uh, I think there, there are multiple uh, diaspora conversations on Israel and some of them are engaged with an actual place called Israel. Some of them uh, are engaged uh, with an imaginary place uh, called Israel. Uh, the advantage that the diaspora has over Israel is that at least you have conversations about the relationship. Uh, we don't really have conversations here. And, uh, and, and annexation was a case in point. Uh, here we were going through this uh, potentially uh, transformative moment and almost no one thought to ask the question, how will this impact on our relationship with the diaspora? It was simply a non-issue. And I, I felt the, the poverty of the Israeli-American Jewish relationship in particular, that after all these years, we haven't created uh, the, the mechanism, the practical mechanism, but more deeply, we, we haven't created a language for, for an American Jewish Israeli conversation for precisely moments like this. And so your question, which is such a, a, a rich and evocative question, no one's asking. I mean, we're asking it. At Hartman, we're asking it. But in the state of Israel, no one is asking the question. And uh, certainly the conversation that I've heard in the last uh, weeks uh, the, the loudest conversation that has come through from, uh, from American Jewry uh, of whether the state of Israel should exist, whether there should be a Jewish majority state, uh, strikes me in its own way as an expression of the poverty of, of, of our language and, and of our ideas. And, and, uh, and so in terms of the question that, that I think we should really be engaged with, and this is a Jewish people question, uh, is what is this, what is this moment in Jewish history? What are the opportunities? What are the, what are the dangers? What, what is the voice of Jewish history here? And, and the way that that usually, if it gets asked at all, the answers tend to be so superficial. Well, if you're, if you're right wing, the, the voice of Jewish history is never again. Uh, and if you're left-wing, uh, the voice of Jewish history is, remember, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. End of Jewish history conversation. Uh, we, we, if we speak in historical terms at all, it tends to be in slogans. And I, 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 find, it, uh, I find it very frustrating. I'm taken by what you said about the, the gap between the Israeli conversation, the American Jewish conversation uh, about Israel, that they seem to not only be uh, not talking to each other directly, like I, not that I, I care really about you, I care about you as a symbol. And that's what I think what's happening in many American Jewish conversations about Israel, not actually about Israelis or Palestinians, but actually about American Jewish identity. And Israel is a totem in that story. And as you said, for many Israelis, they're not engaged at all in the question of the consequences of the state of Israel's actions for for world Jewry. Uh, I, I read recently a piece by Chaviv uh, Redigur, an Israeli journalist, on exactly this point. Uh, 
And he echoes pieces that have also been said by Mati Friedman and others, which is stop talking about Zionism already. Zionism ended with the state of Israel. It's interesting because it doesn't have the politics of post-Zionism, but it is an argument that says what Chaviv was basically saying is you're talking about Zionism and I'm just trying to raise my kids here. Right. This oh, is a real place. And your ideology is getting in the way of my raising my kids. So but I so I want to hear from you, Yesi, because I don't think you identify with that view. I no, think you're still a Zionist. No, not at all. Not but at what all. is what right, what does Zionism look like when it actually starts for many Israelis the conversation about Zionism to interfere with the lived reality uh, of, of being in a particular place at a particular time? So I, I disagree for two reasons. One one practical, uh, the other philosophical. Uh, practically uh, when, when Zionism is under uh, such sustained assault, and the legitimacy of Zionism, the very word Zionism, is, is, uh, is being uh, denigrated around the world, uh, that's not the moment to, uh, to withdraw from, uh, from, a, from, from an embrace of Zionism. And I, I, I feel keenly that we owe Zionism a great debt of gratitude for basically saving the Jewish people in 1945. Uh, Zionism was the animating force of the quarter million survivors living in DP camps in Germany between 1945 and 1948. Those were thoroughly Zionized societies. And, and it was Zionism that, that gave the survivors as a community a sense of the future, whether or not uh, individual survivors chose to move to Israel or, or elsewhere. And then Zionism rescued one million Jews, nearly one million Jews from Arab countries. And I, I often uh, think about, uh, as, as we're watching the Middle East collapse, I often imagine what it would be like if there were several million Jews living today in the Arab world, in Syria, in, in, in Iraq, in Yemen. Imagine the, the, the rescue campaigns that we would have to mount to, to save the Jews of the East, and then, of course, Soviet Jewry, and, and, and Israel is the one place, and this is something that David Hartman uh, understood and, and wrote about, which is that Israel is the one place where assimilation works in favor of the Jewish people, and we saw that play out with Soviet Jewry. And so with these successive waves of, of traumatized refugees coming here, we saw how Zionism saved the Jewish people. And, and so that's really just on the level of, of gratitude, simple gratitude. And more, more deeply, though, I, for me, Zionism, whatever remains of, of the vitality of Zionism as an ideology, concerns the Jewish people. Zionism, for me, today is the ideology of Jewish peoplehood. Uh, the uh, the counter argument of Zionism emerging in 19th century Europe uh, to all of those Jewish movements that arose that were redefining the Jews either as a religion uh, or as a in the case of the of the Bund as a as a as a working class and and Zionism came, or the or the ultra orthodox and and Zionism came along and said the Jewish people. Primarily, we are, our fundamental identity is peoplehood. And that got lost in the early years of Zionism because the, the overriding focus, understandably, was on statehood, 
I'm creating a state. What Zionism means today, what Zionism should mean today, is the reconstruction of the Jewish people, which is the great project of uh, the mid to late 20th century. That's what ha- that was the response to the Holocaust. That was the response to the collapse of, of uh, various ideologies of 19th century European Jewry that attempted to, to, uh, to challenge the legitimacy of peoplehood. And so that for me is what endures, which is why your question is so important. Because if Zionism is the ideology of Jewish peoplehood today, why is it doing such a terrible job in helping the Jewish people actually speak to, to itself? Maybe there's a paradox baked in, Yossi, which is part of the problem. So in, your, in the narrative that you're telling and the history that you're telling, the, te- the tele- teleology of Zionism for, for, its, for, for its heyday, really, uh, 40s through the 80s, was, uh, was effectively saving Jews uh, and bringing them to Israel. Uh, and it's not surprising as a result of that, that Zionism is widely understood to, to be completed and celebrated with the arrival of Jews in Israel. And the biggest community that's left out of that story, the one, the glaring piece that's missing is of course, American Jewry, who I will, I would agree with you that Zionism has had a powerful self-defining effect for American Jews more than we give it credit for. Uh, I think like in a deep way, post-67, American Jews actually become more American and more proud of themselves because of the state of Israel and not in spite of it. So I think Israel has had that effect for American Jews, but it didn't bring the teleology of the American Jewish story to making Aliyah. Actually, American Jews make Aliyah proportionally much less than any other diaspora population. And the idea of of Israel as homeland undermines something very deep for American Jews, which is the under-articulated belief that I think American Jews have that we're already in homeland. So if Zionism through much of the story of the 20th century was actually about bringing in the Jewish people home, it, it's, it's simply not that for American Jews. And you mentioned David Hartman. I don't know how much, how much David Hartman would love the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America because mm-hmm. his project precisely was building a home for diaspora Jewry in the center of Jerusalem for it be a place. He wasn't trying to get them really to make Aliyah, I think he wanted that too, but be able to come to Jerusalem. That's where Torah emanates and you're going to bring the Torah of Israel back. What you're asking us to do is to basically say, okay, Zionism had that function, but now it's about constituting the Jewish people itself. But the real problem, Yassi, is that what you're then describing as a vision for Jewish peoplehood is actually, I'm not sure how compatible it is with the Zionism of homeland. In fact, the people who you're talking about sounds faintly like the, at least the non-Zionist or anti-Zionist construction of Jewish peoplehood, which argues that we are a people that transcends states. We are a people that transcends place. Our relationship to each other is not about being connected to a particular Am Yisrael, the Eretz Yisrael, Alpitarat Yisrael, people in the lands based on the Torah, but actually a connection that transcends those politics. So it does, number one, it doesn't surprise me that the classic Zionist institutions don't want to give up the bring people to Israel and make that the center of gravity. It doesn't surprise me that they are resistant to that. But it also doesn't really surprise me that these visions of Zionism are in such tension with each other. Right, my well, that a diaspora yeah. Zionism and a status Zionism are going to actually be in combat with each other. Well, I, I, I think that that's one of the many 
paradoxes we're going to have to learn to live with, which is on the one hand, uh, a Zionism that affirms, that insists on the centrality uh, of Israel, of Jerusalem in Jewish life. And on the other hand, that celebrates the diffusion of the Jewish people, uh, that celebrates us as an Am Olam. Am Olam has two meanings in Hebrew. It means uh, the eternal people, and we all celebrate the eternity of the Jewish people, but it also literally means a people that lives all around the world. And one of the things that I've learned in my uh, 10, 12 years now at, uh, at Hartman, and one of the things that I've learned in particular from you, Yehuda, is to cherish the uniqueness of, American, of the American Jewish experience and to, to honor that and to, and to fervently hope that American Jewry can, can continue to, uh, to live in its Americanness, fully in its Americanness. I, I worry about that. I, I, I'm, I'm not only worried about what's happening in Israel, I'm worried very much about what's happening in America, what's happening potentially to the American Jewish community. That's perhaps another discussion or maybe the same one. But, um, but you know, just to, to take a step back before we, if, if we do tackle uh, that more practical question, uh, to take a step back, each, each of us, Israel, Israelis and American Jews, uh, have inherited a very different understanding of diaspora. The Israeli experience, of course, is, uh, is, the, is the untenability of diaspora life. Most Israelis uh, trace their familial uh, uh, origins to, uh, to countries where, where Jewish life was uh, violently uprooted. Uh, and, and even even more deeply, uh, what 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 I think is entrenched in the Israeli understanding of diaspora uh, are the historic failures of the two countries in Europe that Jews in the 19th and early 20th centuries looked to for salvation: Germany and revolutionary Russia. And those two Jewish experiments of acceptance failed so dramatically that we are living, at least in Israel, uh, and I think some American Jews as well, are living in the, in the aftershock of the, the historic disappointment of the German Jewish and Soviet Jewish experiments. But in America, you have a very different uh, experiment and the conclusion there is that not only is diaspora uh, is diaspora life viable, uh, but it actually uh, is a, a compelling counterweight to Israel. This is the first diaspora experience that we've ever had that can make that claim. And what I've learned from you is not to feel vaguely threatened by that, but to actually celebrate it. And I'm looking to you now, Yehuda, for reassurance that 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 experiment uh, is going to endure because I'm I'm really worried. Yeah, I'm worried too. And um, I the I guess the one the one tweak I would 
push back on is I, I as an American Jew, am not totally convinced in the, of the viability of diaspora. It's just, I don't think America is diaspora. <laughs> in other words, it's not like America is a case study that diaspora is possible. America is an extraordinarily anomalous story in Jewish history that I think needs to be told as being uh, born in 1948 also, which is the moment when American Jews have the option to leave and decide not to. It actually shaped, we, we are basically living two versions of a much more, a much more comparable story to one another than a competitive one. Um, now, whether America as a project will, will be able to endure, it's a pretty good question right now. The American, American political culture seems irredeemably corrupt. There are long overdue questions about America's, uh, erasure of its own, of its own past, uh, and, um, and, and the ways in which it has made many minority populations feel vulnerable. I think Jews have a very awkward relationship to that conversation uh, because we've actually thrived so much here. And I don't know how it's going to shake itself out, but I don't feel a sense. Uh, I, I really don't, as an American Jew, feel a sense of existential threat to the American project. I don't. Uh, and I don't feel an existential threat to an American Jewish place in the American, in the American project, precisely because I think the experience of American Jewish at-homeness means we are part of shaping that American conversation. We are not sitting on the side waiting for America to figure itself out. And once you're actually a stakeholder in the destiny of your country, that's a different ballgame than being a, a participant in the sideline. That's why, that's why I say I think the American Jewish project and the Israeli project seem so similar to one another because we're both now players on the field, right, in the, in the societies that we're in. But but I want to yeah go ahead go ahead I want to come back to this in a second. The concern yeah. that I have, you and I would really appreciate your response to this. Uh, it's twofold. One is that American Jews may very soon find themselves squeezed between two deeply inhospitable political places: a Republican Party that has become toxic uh, culturally in terms of its. Uh, of its basic decency and a progressive space that could become toxic in terms of tolerance for anti-Semitism. I think we're seeing worrying signs of that. Uh, and um, so that's, 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 that's the first anxiety that I have uh, is, is of an American jury that could be moving from feeling in some sense comfortable in a bipartisan political America to actually being politically homeless. And the second concern that I have is that as America necessarily, understandably, movingly uh, begins perhaps to finally confront uh, the, the inequality that is built in to the American experience, the racial inequality, uh, that uh, Jewish success in places like academia may suddenly become a problem not because of anti-Semitism, but because of a need to redress uh, racial inequality. And then the Jews fall under the category of white and suddenly Jew the Jewish success in America becomes a problem. And if that happens, then we could find America inadvertently confirming the old Zionist critique of diaspora and, and America becoming very much diaspora in the sense that sooner or later the success of, of the Jewish minority or of any successful minority becomes a social problem. And the only space in which Jewish success is not a problem 
will never be a problem, is a Jewish majority country. So this is what, when, when, when I lose sleep over what's happening in America, and, I, and I, uh, I lose sleep mostly over what's happening in my country, but there's, there's enough insomnia for it to go around for America as well. These are some of the, these are some of the concerns that I have. Yeah, look, I haven't slept since March, so maybe that's related. Um, we should do more sessions in the middle of the night. Look, um, there. I don't know whether this is a dispositional difference between you and me, uh, Yessi, uh, something that we've talked about for many years, or whether it's a philosophical difference. But the very things that you fear, I fear also. America, this, all these things could happen, which is the inhospitability of, of, of Jews being able, I'll put it like this, the inhospitability of Jews in any political camp who want to define themselves in ways that are different than the dominant voice of that political camp. So for Jews on the political right who want to care about Jewish peoplehood, but are told by actually their allies on the right that Jews who are anti-Zionists are no longer part of the Jewish people, Right. So then the terms of Jewish people are defined in ways that I don't like. Or if you're on the political left being told that your love of, of the state of Israel makes you inhospitable in those places, you've lost agency. Right. Over being able to define yourself. Am I scared of these things? I am. Um, I am in terms of the, the black Jewish conversation. Uh, our colleague Alex Kay has a great insight on this, which is where he says the West broadly construed defines itself with the using the Jew as the negative object, right? Our, the the identity of the West is built as a negative, as an inverse of the Jew. And what happens to Jews when they come to America is they discover a society that has another, a different significance on which America has built its identity and it's black Americans. And so the, the part, the, the, the weird place that Jews are in is seeing ourselves as being the opposite of the dominant society, but finding ourselves in a place where we're not that anymore. And I think that that's a good description, um, especially for, for white Jews of the, of the story. Am I nervous about these things? Yes. But, and here's where I think there's a dispositional or maybe a philosophical difference between us. Or generational um, as well. Or generational, could be. Um, uh, are we, the, the, the question is like, do you see the possibility of these things happening as a kind of fatalism that therefore affirms the, the posture that we already have? The, you know, once you, affirm your, once you affirm that your fears can happen in the world, then you kind of wait for them to happen, right? There's a, pessimism is not falsifiable. It always can get worse. The optimistic story is harder to get to. Or do we look at the moment that we're in and say Jews have a different level of agency politically and existentially than we've ever had in our lifetime? That's why I want to use the language of Zionism to describe the American Jewish story also, because the strongest way for American Jews out of this is to start recognizing that American Jews are part of it. It's not merely, uh, well, let's see what happens to the Democratic Party or the Republican let's see what happens to mainstream media institutions in america let's see what happens to black jewish relations but for jews to actually acknowledge wait we have power and i don't mean that in the anti-semitic way i mean that in the zionist way you know it's a, that's my same indictment that i have of the state of israel when my israeli friends say well what are we going to do you know the forces of right-wing nationalism and fascism are are going are winning out and what are we going to do religious pluralism doesn't seem to be something that other israelis care about i'm like you guys are in charge 
This is, and that's the David Hartman vision, right? Which is what, for the first time in Jewish history, you get to be in charge of a public square. So now figure out whether you can be in charge of a public square. So that's the, it's not that I think that your fears might not come to pass. It's just that the likelihood is that they're much, or put like this, they're much more likely to come to pass when Jews see themselves as the passive recipients of history than actually active engagement with history. I think that's the shift. The great late 19th, like great 19th century, 20th century shift is people deciding whether for secular reasons or whether for religious reasons that we actually want to be active players in history rather than passive victims of history. Look, I basically agree with you and, and see panic or, or depression as, uh, as really being an inappropriate response to the opportunities that we have, both, both in Israel and in America. Uh, where, where I perhaps differ with you is uh, I believe we need to place these issues very much on the agenda. We, we need to begin a serious internal Jewish conversation uh, about the, the, the challenges, the serious challenges that we face in the 21st century, uh, both here and in America and, of course, in, in, in the relationship. Uh, where I, I, I have, um, again, imbued enough of Hartman Torah over the years to, to celebrate the achievements, the empowerment of both, of both Jewish centers, and, and to, to really avoid, try to avoid the conversation uh, where each side focuses, the, whether it's American Jews looking at Israel or Israelis looking at American Jewry, where each side focuses on the, the uh, structural weaknesses in the other. And God knows there are, there are many weaknesses in both, in both uh, centers. But what we really try to do at Hartman is to, is to celebrate this moment and to celebrate opportunity. And I think that that's really what makes us uh, an effective place for, for Jewish ideas. And, uh, and so in that sense, uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily optimistic. I'm not really an optimist. I don't think Israelis generally are optimistic, but we are hopeful. There's a difference. Israelis tend to be a very hopeful lot. And we need to bring some of that hope into the American Jewish Israeli relationship because somehow when, and I think both communities are uh, I think American Jews tend to be optimistic. Israelis tend to be hopeful, <laughs> if you understand the difference between the two. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think we need to bring some of that optimism and hope into, into how we perceive each other and how we perceive the relationship. So let's, um, let's turn from optimism to pessimism, which is, um, <laughs> let's, I want to kind of go back to one of the questions that, that really motivated this session, which is, there may be a threshold point for, for the American Jewish relationship with Israel. Uh, I know it's not for you. I know annexation was not a threshold issue for you. Uh, in fact, where one of the places where this conversation started between you and I a couple of months ago was that there was a threshold issue when you felt ready to take to the streets 
And there are a set of threshold issues around the state of Israel where you might feel not, not essentially compromised that you couldn't be an Israeli anymore, that you would give up on Zionism, but where you would really feel that this project was compromised. And those seem to be more around domestic political issues than they seem to you would be about annexation. Um, so I'd love for you to parse that. Um, and, and then I want to I get into a little bit why for so many Jews it appears to be that annexation is a bridge too far what that, what, what, why it is and, and why, whether or not it should be. So let's, let's pause for a moment on the question of threshold. What does it mean to have a make or break issue in relationship to Israel? It means something very different for Israelis than it does for uh, probably many American Jews. When American Jews ask that question, they, the question is, will there come a point where I can no longer identify with the Israeli project? Israeli citizens never ask that question. There will never come a point where we don't identify with this project unless you pack up and and leave and cut yourself off entirely from family, from friends, from from Israeliness. And I um, I don't think even most Israeli uh, critics, even far left critics, are really capable of fully severing themselves from the Israeli story. Uh, This is a very powerful, it's a very compelling place. And and so when when I think of a threshold issue, uh, the question for me is, at what point do I become an active opponent of my government? That's very different. That is a normal citizen's question in any society. Uh, and, and, and if you are a responsible citizen, you need to have some red line uh, beneath which you are not prepared to accommodate uh, government policy. Uh, for me, it's certainly the, the erasure of Israeli democracy. Uh, it would be destroying the Supreme Court. Uh, it would be denying uh, non-Jews the rights of citizenship, uh, transferring, expelling Palestinians. So I have my threshold issues that would, as you put it, bring me into the streets or even even uh, send me into an Israeli jail, something that I never imagined possible when I moved here 40 years ago. Uh, I moved here because this was really the one place where I could never imagine finding myself in, in jail for, for any reason. Uh, and now I can see certain circumstances that would uh, that would lead me into this adversarial relationship with with my own government, perhaps with the majority of my own society. But one of the reasons that I moved to Israel, and this has become clear to me only in the last years, as we're hearing more and more of these public American Jewish voices uh, essentially divorcing themselves from from the state of Israel. Um, what, what I realize now is that I moved to Israel to tie my fate with those Jews for whom this is the final shore. There is nowhere to go after this. This is the story. And I wanted to deny myself, I'm going to use a very loaded word, but in a different way. A different way. I wanted to deny myself American Jewish privilege the privilege of divorcing from Israel, uh, or uh, as, we, as we've seen in recent weeks, uh, the privilege of, uh, 
of uh, indulging in utopian fantasies that would destroy the state of Israel for which you take no political responsibility. Being an Israeli means I have to take responsibility for real decisions that will affect the lives of millions of Israelis. And that's why, in the end, that's why I'm here. No, so in terms of threshold, I would say, Yehuda, that I, I, I moved here to change the nature of my threshold. That my threshold would never be, at what point do I cut myself off from the Israeli story? But at what point do I risk myself? Do I get even more immersed in the, in the stuff of the Israeli story and, uh, and really take risks to, to ensure that my vision of Israel remains credible? First of all, I say I admire a lot of it, and I envy a good piece of it, because what it means to be a diaspora uh, Zionist versus being an actual citizen of the state of Israel does give you uh, a difference. You're, you're steeped differently in this story, and therefore the, 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 the way in which you can enact your political dissent is totally different there than here. I guess, um, I guess I have two problems with what you said, Yossi. One is... First of all, you set up a certain set of thresholds uh, around which you'll take to the street. But the, the political critique of, of what I would call really the cynicism of the Israeli government over the last decade, two decades, has been the ability to move the needle on a set of issues without ever creating that threshold. And over time, uh, and I think this is the strongest critique from the left, the status quo is not a status quo. It has been the actual perpetration of a much... So, like, in other words, it's like the frog in the boiling water. By the time you figure out you're supposed to jump out, you're boiled. So what is the moment... Like, when you, when you say, well, you know, the transfer of Palestinians, Israel's not a democracy anymore. There's a lot of places between the river and the sea where, which are under Israeli control where it is very much not a democracy. And even if Israel managed to do a surgical annexation, right, we're going to take this piece of Area C, which is a settlement, you wind up with a situation where 100 meters from an area under Israel military authority, it is a democracy because you have citizens who can vote, and 100 meters later, under Israeli military authority, it isn't a democracy because people can't vote. So <clears throat> I guess problem number one is the, the, the need for thresholds is not, I'm not, it's not that I want to, that I need to mobilize people. Thresholds sometimes, however, help us understand what we think is at stake and, um, and activate us. They mobilize us. And in that respect, the, sh the annexation is the first public shifting of the status quo, affirming that the status quo has been changing all along. So that's number one. The second is, yes, the, um, and you could take either or both of these. The rules are different for American Jews precisely because we can't vote. Uh, and more than that, it, it, it feels in the American Jewish community that we're not even close to the right to protest in exactly the ways that you're describing. Uh, so many American Jews are, uh, you know, are eager. Uh, the, the, those of us who are Zionists are eager for the kinds of activities that will allow us to show, the, to, to show our displeasure, to protest, to go out into the streets. But even the, the faintest criticism of the Israeli government is oftentimes viewed as being an act of, of dissent. And, um, 
you know, and I'm not, I'm no fan of the BDS movement, but even, but, but even by its own logic, it is, it may have a not, it may have a violent outcome, a nonviolent activity. Um, so I, I guess you, you have a, a clear sense of what it means to be a citizen in response to these mo- to the, to moments and to thresholds, but what room do you want to grant to American Jews to be pissed off also (laughs) and maybe not to leave but to express that frustration that anger not just in order to vent it but in order to actually give it teeth but leverage to enable it to maybe do something well in terms of uh the first part of your your analysis uh i agree with you but it's incomplete you got you, you 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 got half the picture right and half that picture is that the Israeli government, uh, certainly in the last 10 years, which not coincidentally corresponds with uh, the, the decade of Netanyahu, uh, this is the decade that we really lost the moral high ground uh, that we, I believe that we had uh, certainly uh, with Ehud Barak, that we had with Olmert, uh, with uh, where we... Uh, took the initiative where we presented plans. We put we put plans on the table. We haven't put a, a real plan, a viable plan on the table uh, in the last decade. And the Trump plan uh, is not a um, a viable plan for a final status agreement. I think it's it's an interesting plan for a a long term uh, interim agreement, but it wasn't presented that way. Uh, if I were Palestinian leaders, I would have. T- taken the high ground uh, and said, okay, uh, this is an interesting interim plan. We're prepared to negotiate uh, um, on an interim basis. And meanwhile, let's look at that $50 billion that you're saying you'd like to invest in Palestinian society. And that brings me to the second half of the picture that you're missing. And And this is one of the major differences between Israeli liberals and American Jewish liberals that more and more when American Jewish liberals talk about the occupation, they, they focus on, on the sins of Israel, the sins of the Israeli government, and that surely needs to be part of the equation. But what's missing is what I think almost any Israeli would tell you, which is even if the left-wing Meretz party had been running this government for the last 10 years, there would not be a peace agreement. Uh, I don't know any Israel, hardly any Israelis, who believe that there is any chance, anytime soon, of reaching an agreement, no matter what we do. Now, maybe that's wrong, but we really believe that. And so that is what has allowed this status quo, which you rightly point out, is in fact a cover for undermining the status quo, uh, to persist all these years. And... What I need in a serious conversation with American Jews, what I need to feel that that, that American Jews are my partner in in anguish, in in trying to to really sort out what do we do, is, is an acknowledgement that from the beginning of this conflict, the Palestinian national movement has been committed in one way or another to the disappearance of a Jewish majority state. Whether violently, for the early decades of the state, that meant 
conventional war against Israel, supported by, by the, the Arab states. Uh, later, it became a terror war, although the terror war really continued all through, throughout the conflict. And uh, in recent years, it shifted to a campaign of delegitimization. And, uh, and, and with the, the eventual hope of refugee return, of, of, of destroying the demographics now, now when, uh, of the state of Israel. Now, when I bring these, these, when I, when I bring these arguments up, the, the usual response is either boredom. Oh, you know, really, that's so 1980s. Uh, or uh, complete denial because, or accusing Israelis of living in denial that we're the ones who, who don't recognize the transformation that's happened uh, on the Palestinian side. So for me to, 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 to feel the same, I, I share your angst, Yehuda. I don't share your outrage. That's the difference. I don't feel the liberal American Jewish anger toward Israel in the same way. I'm disgusted with my government for all kinds of reasons, including undermining the status quo, including uh, threatening Israel's moral credibility by, by raising the issue of annexation. I'm with you on that. But, but my, my anger is, is, uh, is very much uh, divided between both sides. And, and I need to know that American Jews feel that anger toward the Palestinian national movement and that deep sense of mistrust. And what would a Palestinian state look like if it were created? These are the issues, again, they're not philosophical issues. These are practical issues. But maybe that's part of the difference between being an American Jew and being an Israeli. I don't have the luxury of relating to these issues primarily philosophically. What I need from an American-Jewish partnership is a reminder that I also need to have philosophical conversations about these questions. It's not just philosophical, Yassi, and it's not just, it is not, it, it, I, don't, I don't claim in my, in my views to, ha- to have it sorted out. Like this is, what's, this is how the final status agreement is supposed to happen. And I'm actually very skeptical of, um, of American-Jewish claims that are rooted in and neatly packaged uh, articulations of if only this was the picture, this is what it would look like. That's my, one of my strongest grievances with the one state people is that they have neither a political will by Israelis or Palestinians to bring about that reality um, and a completely naive understanding of what that ultimately will look like. Uh, so that's not, that's not what this is about. What it is, where I feel you know, call it angry, call it let down, call it ashamed, is that it goes back to the question of agency, Yassi. Why, why, when it relates to the perpetration or the perpetuation of occupation, has Israel allowed itself to drift silly from we have to do whatever, we have to do what we need to survive in a, in a region that is hostile to us and with a, with a Palestinian population for which we don't have a solution, why has Israel allowed itself to go from that posture to a place of ruthlessness and to a politics 
of bilateralism, which is if you do this, we'll do this. But if you control, if you actually have power, I'm not saying Israel controls the outcome of what happens with the Palestinians, but it controls a lot. It controls a lot of the lives of Palestinians. It control and and there, there's just no excuse morally. And the, and and the real betrayal, Yassi, is this is the, this for this, like this is the great story of coming home of saving the Jewish people. I why is Israel not actually a leader on the world stage in its own? commitments to moral unilateralism and that's the place of uh, and i can go to I, I can and i will go to the mat for israel's inability to bring about the the outcome that it wants but i can only do it if israel if israel and its government seem equally committed to bringing about that outcome <laughs> and if they don't what does it mean to actually go to the mat for the state of israel so i'll i'll just speak personally for a moment uh, and that is that the weekly seminars that we have together, the I Engage seminars, um, really transformed me. And the fact that in the last few years I've been devoted to, to dialogue with Palestinians, to, to trying to create a different language that Israelis and Palestinians uh, might draw on for peace, uh, is, uh, is really a direct outgrowth of much of the work that we've done. So you personally have had an influence on me. Our, our chavruta, our extended chavruta, has had a very deep influence on me. Um, I, until a few years ago, I, what I said a moment ago would have really been all I had to say, which was a very kind of normative Israeli response. Uh, there's no one to make peace with, and... Uh, um, American Jews are becoming dangerously naive, which I do believe that that is. I, I, I agree with you that Israelis are, are becoming more and more. Um, we are approaching the threshold of brutality and American Jews are approaching the threshold of naivete. And each of these, to my mind, are betrayals of, uh, of another essential lesson of Jewish history. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not, now I'm not speaking personally about the two of us, because I know that you, uh, you have, uh, you have a, a deep stake in, uh, in the well-being of this country. And that's, that's not what this conversation is about. Uh, I don't feel that from many American Jews, from many American Jewish critics. If you're asking me, when do I, Yehuda Kurtzer, have the legitimacy to go into the streets, my response is you always have that legitimacy. You, you are so invested uh, in this story, in this country, that you have, you, we, you know, at Hartman we speak about citizenship in the Jewish people. Well, that carries weight here. If Israel truly is the homeland of the Jewish people, then that means that Jews not only have the responsibility to support Israel, but also to, to oppose Israeli policies when necessary. Uh, I have two questions, though. And again, these are not questions that are directed to you personally. They're directed more to, to progressive American Jews generally. Uh, the first is... Um, do you feel that, that you have that deep investment in Israel's future? 
And, and do you show up for Israel not only when it's, not only uh, for criticizing, but also for supporting? And, uh, and the, second, the second question really is, uh, is effectiveness. Uh, I think about what impact American Jewish demonstrations against the Israeli policy uh, would have. Uh, it is likely to have no impact at all, unfortunately, on the Israeli public, uh, but may very well strengthen the forces seeking to delegitimize Israel. And that's, that's, for me, that's a real question, the question of effectiveness. So it's not a, a, it's not a philosophical question at all. Philosophically, I believe that, that American Jews not just have the right, but the responsibility to criticize Israel when, when that's necessary. But there are other considerations that if we had a, a healthy conversation between American Jews and Israelis, this would be one of the issues that we would be able to discuss. I think the reason it's hard for me to accept those terms, Yassi, is because the first, which, is about, which seems to be about credibility, if you show me that you love me, I'll let you criticize me, is so easily and frequently manipulated in the American Jewish community and by Israelis. Uh, I, you know, the decision, I can hear criticism from you, but I can't hear it from that person because they haven't shown their love. I just, I think it, it, it turns our, it, it, I find that it trivializes the sincerity of our conversation by making people perform their loyalties in ways that are silly. Um, I believe like in a deep way that part of patriotism is criticism. So if I, 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 and I, I, I would much prefer an American Jewish community, you, you, we may not be on the same page on this, I would much prefer an American Jewish community that was hyper engaged with Israel, even if it was critical and angry, than the majority of the American Jewish community, which is deeply disconnected from the story of Israel and the Jewish people, and it's not angry at it either. Um, I think it depends so, how, how hyper... Yeah. You want the Jewish people or not? <laughs> I mean, there's something, I, I think that part of what's beautiful about even the hypercriticism is that means we have taken our disciplinary activity as Jews, which is arguing about substantive issues, and we've placed in the center of that Beit Midrash, the project of Jewish nationalism in the 20th century. That's great. We've done exactly what Jews should have, should been, should have been doing for a long time. And I think that that's actually a compelling story for us to debate on because then we're talking about power and democracy and, and what it means for, for Jews to be in the world. And I guess on the second point that you made, which wasn't much, as much about credibility, and there, I, again, um, I think the rules are so, are so skewed, Yessi, around the question of effectiveness. Because if you oppose something from the outset, it's going to be less effective. <laughs> um, and, and like... If the if the rule if there are if there are baked in rules, which claim that even if an activity could be effective, it's illegitimate, then then I don't know whether I'm I'm having a a, a legitimacy question or effectiveness question. In the American Jewish community, there are there are narrower boundaries of dissent than there are in the Israeli Knesset. So for for two decades, the American Jewish community pushed away J Street as an illegitimate player on the national scene, even though J Street actually echoed with voices that were totally legitimate as part of the Israeli parliament. So it's not surprising that then another generation of Jews comes along and says, we were fools. 
instead of playing within the normative boundaries, like the, at this point, you look back at J Street, nostalgically, J Street was what? Merits, even a little further right than merits, arguing for a two-state solution. Now, the, it, the part of what we see in terms of the generational change is, you told us to play by a certain set of rules, but you weren't even letting us engage under those rules. So I don't even know where to even have the conversation about, the, about effectiveness. And this is what makes a liberal Zionist position in America feel so bereft, because it, because I don't really know how to play this out in ways that are going to be viewed not just by my friends, but certainly by my political opponents as being fundamentally legitimate. That's where I look, think the sticking look, point the, is. The tent where, where I feel comfortable sitting in is where everyone inside is committed to the project of a Jewish majority state. And if you oppose the existence of a Jewish majority state, I don't have that... I don't have a partnership with you. We're not part of the same project. Uh, I can't be. I, I can't have a partnership with people who are not completely committed to the most basic well-being of my society, to our existence. That's there's no shared. There's no partnership there, and so I can't divorce the 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 criticism from the critic. If, if the critic is somebody who denies my, my legitimacy, uh, I, I, I don't feel myself morally bound, Jewishly bound, to, to respect that criticism, to take it into account. Uh, I, feel, I feel morally bound to, to pay serious attention to the critiques of American Jews who are committed to this shared project. And, uh, and yes, of course, mistakes were made. And yes, J Street should never have been ostracized. And, uh, and look, Yehuda, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of J Street, but I spoke at their, at their national conference. And, uh, and, and, and I would again, if they would, <laughs> if they would invite me. Or we have, or if we have, or if we ever have conferences again. <laughs> right. You know, but, uh, I will. I, I personally will f- feel at home in any part of the American Jewish community that is committed to supporting a Jewish majority state. That's my. That is my people. I'm not writing the anti-Zionists out of the Jewish people, but I am writing them out of my shared responsibility, my my sense of partnership. I have nothing. I have no common project with anti-Zionist Jews. And that's, that's, very, yeah. that's very painful for me. That's not, that's not a, a, a defiant statement. That's a statement. It's a broken statement. Because there aren't that many of us. And some of the Jews who are turning against, against the existence of Israel are serious Jews. Some of them are my friends. And this is, this is personally wrenching for me. And I, I, I don't write anyone out of the Jewish people, or almost anyone, whether it's Jews for Jesus uh, or Jewish Voice for Peace. That, this is the Jewish people. But, the, but they are not... I, 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 have no, I have no shared work with those people. 
So I want to come back and we'll can close with um, a question on what do you think liberal Zionists should do then, right? To turn it from Alota say to us, say what we shouldn't do and should do. But before we do that, um, before that, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about annexation. We'll ask you, we'll talk about one or one or two other topics. And then, and then I know that there's a bunch of Q and A that I think Rachel is curating that we can take. Um, I think that for, for, for many observers of the current moment, uh, annexation and its aftermath, um, or its proposed aftermath, the issue is less annexation in and of itself. Uh, the issue is democracy. And you, you alluded to this before, uh, which is if Israel, uh, you alluded to, annex, to democracy as an issue, right? It's something that would make you take to the streets. Um, I think part of the reason why democracy is a threshold issue for a larger percent of the population is not just, uh, it's not just because like we want Israel to be a democracy, but actually because uh, America, and Jewish Zionism, a diaspora Zionism, has predicated itself on Israel as a Jewish democratic state. And now suddenly there's this possibility that it's not that, and, and I got to rewrite the talking points. <laughs> you have to support Israel whether or not it's a democracy. And I wonder whether that's, um, for the reason why that's a too, too, too hard of a bridge to cross is not because American Jews are silly American Jews, but really because for 300 years post-Enlightenment, we have come to believe, I think legitimately, that our Judaism is interlaced with democratic values, that that's actually part of what it means to be a Jew. I want a Judaism that believes in religious pluralism and human rights, as not as external, external variables that limit my Judaism, but because that's what I think is the authentic voice of the Jewish tradition itself. And if Israel ultimately becomes um, a non-democracy, and many have argued that are already in parts of uh, parts of Israel-Palestine, we're seeing things that are not a democracy, uh, it's, I, I simply can't be a part of it. So I guess let me put this again as, a, as an active question. What does it look like to fight for democracy right now? What are the activities that Israelis should be doing to fight on behalf of their democracy, even if they're okay with annexing this part of Area C? What does it look like to actually advocate, not just to resist annexation, but to actually fight for democracy right now? And then we can come to the question of what can American Jews be doing to, to promote democracy? Okay, well, I, I, for me, the, the, the premise is that, that you can never freeze the frame when it comes to Israel. This is a... A, a, an extraordinarily dynamic place where, 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 which is constantly reinventing itself in good ways and bad ways. But you can't freeze the frame. There have been so many distinct Israels that I've lived through in 40 years here that, uh, that to say Israel is this, Israel, or if Israel, God forbid, uh, loses its, uh, its democratic identity, that Israel is now permanently non-democratic. To my mind, that would mean that we're going through a very bad phase. And uh, I, I feel that the roots of Israeli democracy are deep enough that even if, God forbid, we were to lose, temporarily lose our, our democratic identity, uh, there would be enough of a possibility for retrieval uh, in the same way that uh, other democratic societies that have lost uh, their their democratic institutions and then and then restored them, I mean, there there, there is that is part of the 20th and 21st century story as well. And there tends to be in 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 our discourse, and maybe partly because we're still uh, not fully confident about the durability of uh, Jewish sovereignty. 
uh, after after so many centuries that we don't we 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 haven't learned how to take certain things for granted, and and it's not only the existence of Israel, but it's the fact that you can, you can lose you can lose something precious in a country's uh, identity, and it can be retrieved. And more mature societies know this and have experienced it. We haven't yet. In terms of what Israelis need to do to defend democracy, well, first of all, uh, we have to do everything we can to stop annexation. And I've tried in my limited way as a, as a writer, I've been uh, writing anywhere I can, both in the Israeli media and the American media, to, to try to warn against annexation. And that's just one example. But we need to start taking the threat to democracy seriously. And to my mind, that is, aside from Corona and the economic collapse, <laughs> that, that is, that is the, the, should be the, the single uh, most important uh, domestic issue. And, uh, and it isn't. Uh, it is for my camp, for the center. The center was galvanized around this issue. But you have many Israelis on the right who do have uh, basic democratic instincts, but don't take the threat to democracy seriously. And uh, the Likud, for example, used to be a normative democratic party. It was a, a nationalist, liberal, or democratic party, which today, of course, sounds like a, a, a contradiction. And, uh, and so the, what, what is happening to the right is, uh, is something that worries me deeply. And I think what we need to do in Israeli society is have a deep internal conversation between the center and the right about democracy, which is something that's not happening here at all. In terms of uh, American Jews, I would like to hear what you think. What do you think American Jews need to do? So I've felt for a long time that, um, that the biggest slippery slope that American Jewish liberal Zionism faces in its relationship to Israel is the, is the seduction of what I like to call negative engagement. Uh, if I think punitive, if I, if I respond to Israel's actions through punitive actions, uh, it's somehow going to steer it back on the right course. Uh, very few individuals and very few countries respond to punitive uh, and negative engagement by actually changing their ways. Um, I'm doing a shiur later for rabbis on whether, whether our tradition believes that the Jewish people ever can actually repent. And, and it's certainly the prophetic model doesn't work. Right. In fact, that's the mockery of the book of Jonah is like when he goes and speaks to the Gentiles, immediately they repent. And I think that's meant to show that like the Jewish people are stubborn. We don't like being yelled at and being, we don't like being berated. Uh, it doesn't work. In fact, I think one of the most haunting parts of the whole Tanakh is that at the end of the book of Lamentations, the last line is, we don't know whether our repentance will actually work. God may be just too mad at us to allow us to repent. So I just don't think that, I think on a theologically, but I also think politically, I don't think it works. I don't think Israelis react well, respond well to the sense of like, of being tongue, tongue lashed or threatened. I think um, it feels to me like the, the current campaign now, uh, really on the far left of the Democratic Party is to withhold aid 
to make it conditional on, uh, on, on stopping annexation. And I, to me, that misunderstands what, Israel, what aid to Israel was all about, which was, uh, which was giving Israel money to take risks. I'm waiting for the politician who comes along and says, the way to incentivize uh, an Israeli-Palestinian peace process is through more aid, not less aid. Um, so I would love to see... I would love to see the articulation of a liberal Zionist position. And by saying that, I know I mean that I have some, I have, I guess I have some work to do that tries to actually get back to the project of saying, this is what Israel is supposed to be. This is what its moral unilateralism could look like. And this is what it means for us as American Jews to be pushing Israel from behind, as opposed to confronting Israel from the front. Uh, Again, I think that that is hard to do precisely because the dominant, the loudest position, I don't think it's the most representative in the American Jewish community, the loudest position in the American Jewish community, which calls itself Zionist, is not a liberal Zionist position. It's actually a reactionary Zionist position, and it makes a lot of noise, and it taints the waters such that like if you if you don't speak in that majority if you speak in a in a from a place of love and criticism you can be very easily painted as being a, a hater of the Jewish people and a hater of the state of Israel and that constricts the lane in which we have to work but i, I do think that that fundamentally is the project for liberal zionism which is to push from behind um and towards something as opposed to be kind of confronting with a negative theology <laughs> everything you're doing is wrong and now I need to withhold resources from you. I think that's just, a, it's a long-term losing proposition. The more you back away from a project, the more you're going to be distant from it. It's also a last thing I want to ask you. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental misreading of the Israeli psyche. Uh, when we feel gang, ganged up upon, uh, which Israelis uh, very often do feel, uh, criticism, uh, even coming from, from friends, uh, tends to uh, to be to be seen as uh, as 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 threat rather than opportunity, uh, and so part of 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 changing the conversation between American Jews and Israel, or I would even go so far as to say creating really creating a conversation because we don't really have a conversation yet, uh, would be exactly. The, uh, along the lines of what you're suggesting, which is thinking of how how can American Jews really make an impact uh, on, on on Israelis? And sometimes, you know, you know, sometimes it's 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 a it's a question of learning each other's language. And 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 I, I when I when I speak to the leaders of the liberal uh, denominations in America, the the argument I try to make is that. You're using the wrong language when you speak to Israelis. Don't appeal to Israelis on the basis of religious pluralism. Israelis don't care about religious pluralism. They don't understand religious pluralism for a simple reason. Most Israelis come from Jewish communities in the diaspora where there was no religious pluralism. But if you speak to Israelis in the language of Jewish peoplehood, of Zionism, of the promise of the state to, to reflect the totality of the Jewish experience and how, and how denying the place of, of the liberal denominations in the Israeli public space is actually a betrayal of the promise of Zionism. That's something that many Israelis could hear. And so I, I, I would, I would uh, frame uh, your 
your uh, approach to the question of annexation and more broadly uh, of, ac- of occupation in the same way. The question is, what is the language? And if we really respect each other and really, really uh, want a, a conversation in, in which the, the values of each side are, are respected, then, uh, then that's the kind of conversation that we need to have. Let me ask you one last thing, Yessi, which is um, you, you, you wrote the book Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor to start a conversation with your actual neighbors. And so there's an interesting, um, so it's such an interesting dynamic, which is that you've spent more of your career talking to American Jews than to your neighbors. And I think that that was in some ways the corrective. You know what, if I'm here with these people, right? And I actually saw a number of Palestinian activists writing this week, and it was it, it gave me real pause, who said, who said, all you American Jews who are talking about Israel, we know Israelis a lot better than you do. (laughs) I thought that was like actually really intense. Like we know Israeli culture, we know Israeli language, we know Israeli politics better than you do. So what are you actually talking about? What did you learn from Palestinians in their responses to your piece? Uh, I know it was was mixed, uh, some public responses in the New York Times and elsewhere, but also many private responses. What, What did you learn from Palestinians which altered your conception of your responsibility to their historical narrative, to their national narrative. Well, because well, that's, that's the thing that I think many of us who don't live there cannot fully identify with. We, we can connect with the Jewish history part of this. We can connect with the versions of Israel that we see, but there is another people in this land pursuing its dreams of self-determination and sovereignty. And I think you've, you've gotten access to that story. What did you hear and how does it obligate you? In, you, in how you think about your own politics? Well, I can't say, Yehuda, that I learned much that I didn't know conceptually about this conflict. I've been living this conflict for so many years and in so many different ways, uh, as a journalist, uh, as, as a soldier, as a, as a reconciliation activist, as a, as a citizen. And, and the the frames of reference of, of this conversation uh, tend to be uh, pretty well-trodden. Uh, but what I did learn was the emotional intensity of, uh, of the impact of our return home on Palestinians. And that's something that, that is very hard for Israelis to confront. Uh, our return home which I regard as, uh, as one of the great moments, not just in Jewish history, but in, uh, uh, in human history. Uh, our return home uh, helped shatter the Palestinian people. We, the Palestinians are a broken people today. And yes, I certainly agree with the main stream Israeli response to what I've just said, which is Palestinian leaders could have created a different reality for their people if they had only agreed to compromise at every stage of the way. I accept that, but that's not good enough. And I come back to what you said uh, toward the beginning of this conversation, which is uh, agency, which is Zionism as as demanding responsibility uh, for, for our actions. And one of the, the, really the extraordinary things about Zionism, classical Zionism, was that its critique of anti-Semitism had really very 
little to do with non-Jews. It was all about the Jewish impact on non-Jews. What do we need to do differently? And some of the Zionist critique of the Jewish persona uh, could, be, could be read as almost anti-Semitic. Uh, it's critique of the, of the Jewish economic role uh, in, uh, in society. And, uh, and, 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 and that the Zionists were fearless in their, and relentless in, in insisting that we take responsibility for our actions. And what I learned by immersing myself for these last few years in Palestinian stories, more, more than the Palestinian story, was Palestinian stories. It was getting to know people again. I haven't known, I haven't had a relationship with Palestinians since the Second Intifada, which is very typical for Israelis, including many Israelis who did have relationships with Palestinians. So I've now renewed those relationships and I've opened myself up to the despair and, and on, on, on the Palestinian side. And it's, it is a shattering experience for me as an Israeli to hear a young Palestinian tell me, I have no future because your country won't let me breathe. And again, I'm separating what I believe might be necessary politically for Israel to, to protect itself in the Middle East, which to my mind uh, precludes a Palestinian state at this moment, from accepting the consequences. And that's what I find missing in Israeli society today, is that we let ourselves off the hook too easily. Yes, there's Palestinian intransigence. Yes, the, the, the Palestinians uh, have turned out every offer. And yes, the, the main stumbling block remains right of return. And I, I, I am an, a normative Israeli. I believe that. I'm an ordinary Israeli. But that's not good enough. We have to take responsibility for the suffering that, that we're causing. Even if that suffering, to some, ex- to some extent, might be unavoidable.